Demonology and the Triphasic Model of Trauma, an Integrative Approach, a Good Omens fanfic written by NNM and performed by Starcatcher Betty. Chapter 15, Expressive Arts Therapy. The final phase of therapy, according to the triphasic model of trauma, is often referred to as reconnection. It is in this phase that the focus of therapy turns primarily to questions of meaning and value. It is in this phase that the trauma survivor is given the opportunity to think through the many choices available to him and the values that he wants to have structure in his life. It is during this phase that the trauma survivor is encouraged to see himself as more than a trauma survivor, to learn how to define himself and his life around more than just the terrible things that have happened to him. Of course, the triphasic model of trauma provides only an abstract representation of how trauma therapy actually works. The three phases are not as clear-cut as the model may make it seem. Questions of meaning and value work their way into just about all therapy, including the first and second phases of trauma work. They certainly had for Aubrey time, as she worked with her client, Anthony J. Crowley. Now that his trauma narrative was complete, however, it was time to turn their attention more fully to these complex and difficult questions. What do you want to live for? Who do you want to be? Generally, during the third and final phase of trauma therapy, Aubrey Time would allow herself to take on more than an existentialist stance with her clients. Existentialist therapy, after all, is entirely focused around what one chooses for oneself, what values one will take on and use to guide one's life. It wasn't always the most clearly defined form of therapy and it didn't always allow for easily identifiable treatment goals, but it could be useful. It could be useful for humans to approach life through the lens of existentialism. The problem Aubrey Time faced was this. Existentialism is built from a single, central, foundational assumption. Existentialist therapy always, always begins with this. Your death is inevitable, so what do you want to do with the time you have left? Existentialism was, most definitely, a therapeutic approach designed with mortals in mind. All humans die. Aubrey Time would die. There were no resources, no practitioner guides, nothing about how to approach the meaning of life without the assumption of an inevitable death. What does it mean to live a good life when there is neither birth nor death to bookend the time one has to walk on earth? It was hard enough, in Aubrey Time's professional opinion, to make sense of the whole of one's life when one can expect to have, at best, 60 more years to go. What hope could a mortal like her have helping a person make sense of more than 6,000 years of personal history and a future that could go on indefinitely. You brought something, Crowley said, as he made his way over to his chair, removing his sunglasses, 
and he set down Bud in her spot. He said it because he could see the bag Aubrey Time had positioned by the side of her own chair. He was always very observant, always aware of any changes to his environment. I did, indeed, she said, closing the door behind him, moving to her chair. Can you tell what it is? He made a face. How would I be able to tell what you have in your bag? She made a face back at him. It's just an idea I had, she said, pulling the bag up into her lap. She didn't open it yet. She just held it for now. She was going to be careful. I'm not sure if it's a good idea or not. You have to let me know if I'm overstepping or if we're wandering into dangerous territories. That got his attention. He raised an eyebrow. Curiosity peaked. What have you got in there? She still didn't open the bag. Everything we've done has revolved around books, hasn't it? So I didn't see why we shouldn't keep up with the theme. Oh, good. A book, he groaned. The theatrical son of a bitch that he was. Well, she said with a nod of her head to the side, as if she were innocently considering the meaning. Some people would say it's a good one, at least. She waited at that, watching for recognition to dawn in his face. She gave a grin. Not a big one. Not a satisfied one. Just a small one. I can't believe you, he said, and he sounded tickled rather than shocked. Is it safe for me to bring it out? He made a flourish with his hands. It's just a book, Aubrey. It was annoying how he acted like the rules of his existence made any goddamn sense, like she should be able to know without asking what he could and couldn't do, what was and wasn't safe for him. Good old Crowley, she thought, as she pulled the good book out from her bag. It was a nice Bible, she had to admit. It was leather-bound with gold trim. It was large and thick, not one of those pitiful things that's given out for free. There was heft to it. It was the sort of Bible Aubrey Time thought that would be great for throwing at someone if you were limited in your choice of weapon, but still really wanted to do some damage. She held the Bible up in the space between them. He looked at it. He looked at her, and then he looked at it and he looked amused. You taking up proselytizing? I'm an odd choice for your first target, but all right, I'll hear you out. Ha, shut up, she said. She moved the Bible around a bit, let the gold-edged pages flap a little. Let me tell you what I was thinking. He leaned back to get comfortable in his chair. It was a signal. He was listening. I've been thinking, she began, you've been around for the whole history of the earth, which, from my perspective at least, is a pretty long time. It's going to be hard for us to work through everything that you've lived through, 
everything you've done and everything you can do throughout all of the rest of time. So my idea was why start from scratch and doing all of that when we've got something like a rough draft already written out for us. She raised her eyebrows, gave a shrug. You know, the accuracy of that thing is greatly exaggerated, he said. It wasn't a rejection, though. I bet, she nodded. The point is, use it as a draft, make it accurate, make it your own. My own? He asked. She could tell that he was thinking. His head was tilted just a little to the side now, and he was regarding her. That, she knew well by this point, meant that he was not entirely sold yet, but was open to hearing more. You could rewrite it, or go through and redact all the bullshit. Turn it into some sort of poetry, or, I don't know, uh, tear it up into shreds and turn it into paper mache She hadn't worked out any specific ideas, really. She'd come into the session with nothing more than half a plan and trust in their joint capacity to improvise. Well, that and also a Bible. It would be up to you to figure out what sort of project would be valuable for you. We could work on it in here, either together or you on your own. Hmm, he said, because he was still thinking. He leaned forward and held out a hand. So she gave the Bible over to him. He looked down at it as he held it. Of course, she went on, because she had at least thought through this enough to recognize where the snags could be. It doesn't contain the whole history of everything, does it? It starts just with the creation of the earth, so we'd have to work out something for everything that came before that. Hmm, he said again, now turning the Bible over. He ran a thumb over the edge of the leather binding, pulled at the front cover enough to see how pliable it was. I can think of something. He suddenly grew still, and then he sniffed. Aubrey, he said, his eyes darting up to catch her in his sights. He hadn't looked shocked or scandalized before, but now she saw a glimmer of something like that in his expression. This is yours. What? This. He raised the Bible just a little, as if the referent of the fairies could have been up for debate. He was still looking at her. This is your Bible. I can smell it. Well, shit she thought. Because, yes, he was right. It was her own Bible, and apparently that was something that mattered. She decided to lean into sarcasm, to defend against the sincerity it seemed he had somehow just found. I don't know how things are over in England, she said, but here in the States, sometimes you just wake up and find yourself in possession of a Bible. He gave a small snort, an acknowledgement that she was joking, but he kept on looking at her. Oh, fine, she sighed, repositioning herself in her seat, 
leaning an elbow on her armrest. It was a gift from a misguided aunt back when I was in high school, and now I'm trying to declutter, so... She shrugged. He seemed satisfied with that answer, turning his eyes back down to the Bible. You know, he said, and there was something about his tone, not entirely like he was amused, but something near to amused. I may be retired, and you, well, we both know your situation, but all the same. Now he looked back up at her, and he was grinning. You have no idea what it's like as a demon to have a human hand over her personal Bible and ask you to desecrate it. Ha, she said, feeling now a bit awkward. It was challenging, navigating waters she didn't understand, but at least Crowley seemed amused, or something like amused, something in the ballpark of amused. Satisfied, perhaps, or perhaps she thought maybe what he seemed was gluttonous. She didn't know what to think, if that was the correct interpretation of how he seemed. She cleared her throat and got back on track. <clears throat> so, what do you think? He pursed his lips, the way he did when he was developing a plan. He turned his attention back down to the book. I'll need supplies. Sure, tell me what you need and I'll get it. Oh, I think those will do. He moved his head without looking up, indicating over to the side of the room. She looked, and she saw what was now stacked up on her desk. Blank canvases, glues, dyes, inks, and other similar supplies. Crowley, Aubrey Time came to learn, was an artist. Someone as fidgety and wiggly as Crowley shouldn't be so good at meticulous details. It made sense, though, once Aubrey Time put her mind to reasoning it through. He was a planner, a designer. He would have made a good architect someone who could take in the whole of a desired structure and puzzle through the specifications that would allow it to hang together. He had so much constant, pent-up energy, and working through those meticulous details gave that energy an outlet. He was free to think and talk, so long as his hands were occupied, the opposite of idle hands, or something. He didn't work through the Bible from the beginning, that would have been too orderly. He worked, it seemed, randomly. She could notice no pattern to what books in the Bible he focused on or when, and he didn't provide any reasons for his choices either. They established a new normal. Crowley would lay out on the floor, whole body stretched long, belly to the ground, propped up on his elbows with the supplies in front of him, it was obvious he was so comfortable this way. It was obvious, and Aubrey Time couldn't believe she hadn't realized it sooner, that there had never been a good reason for him to be confined to a seat. From the very first time she saw him, it was clear he wasn't meant for sitting, and yet only now did she realize there had 
been an alternative available to them. While he was stretched out, working on his project, she would sit on the floor nearby. She would lean against the side of her armchair, and she would watch idly while he worked. They would chat, converse while he worked. He had scissors. He cut out the words one by one. He dismantled the books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, a single word at a time, and he reordered them into artworks. The first he did was Leviticus. That he transformed into the image of a hand holding an oyster shell. She had thought that was clever at first. Then, after he explained it to her, she thought it was both very sweet and also clever. Of course, he wasn't satisfied by it. He wouldn't have been satisfied by it, no matter how it had turned out. She was sitting there, leaning against her armchair, when he shifted into a bitter terseness, and his sharp fingernails tore into the canvas. Of course he would have done that. There had been no doubt in Aubrey Time's mind that Crowley would try to destroy what he made. That was why Aubrey Time had come prepared. Soon as the canvas was ripped, she stood marched over to her desk and pulled out the canvas repair kit she had purchased on her own. Then she marched back over to him, slapped it on the floor to his side, and growled, Fix it. He was snippy about it. They were both snippy. They bickered and they griped as he went about fixing it. He pretended she was responsible for the repaired canvas looking worse than it had before. She called him out on his bullshit. It worked. The next session, they spoke at length about the Japanese art of kintsugi. Aubrey Time almost always found herself talking to trauma survivors, at some point or another, about the Japanese art of kintsugi. Things can be beautiful when they're not perfect she said as she held the gold repaired bowl she kept just for these purposes they can be beautiful because they're not perfect he didn't believe her not entirely not thoroughly he didn't have it in him to believe her not yet but he was trying and he was committed and he was working very hard he was trying and he was committed and the Bible is a very long book. They had plenty of time. There was a theme to many of the pieces he made, a theme that was in no way a surprise. Here was a close-up of an eye, stunningly blue and piercingly kind, laughter lines crinkling at its edges. Here were lips curled up into a smile, here was a rolled parchment clutched under an arm. Of course the history of the whole world could be, for Crowley, a character study of Aziraphale. Song of Solomon became a bared ankle, rising from an old-fashioned shoe. Aubrey Time chose not to ask too much about that one. Not every piece was of Aziraphale, though. She was glad about that relieved when she first noticed him working on a different theme. Crowley was a whole being, after all, not just Aziraphale's sidekick. 
There was so much he needed to process beyond his experiences with the one angel. One major theme that emerged from his pieces began with the boring sections. The first he did came out from the instructions for building a tabernacle. This he turned into a portrait of a child. Then he worked with descriptions of who begat who. This another portrait of a child. Census records became a portrait of a child. Specifications for sacrifices became a portrait of a child. The story of the ark became a portrait of a child. These are just some that I remember off the top of my head. He said, quiet, soft. There are so many. You lot all come and go so fast. I couldn't remember them all if I tried. She didn't want to ask. She knew the answer, just by looking, by hearing how he sounded. So she really didn't want to ask. But it was her job to ask. She knew she had to ask. Crowley? She made herself ask. Why do you remember them as children? It took many long and terrible weeks for them to work through the answer to what she had asked. The first time she heard Crowley scream, truly horrifyingly scream, was when he came to the story of Abraham and Isaac. He was cutting out words, and then suddenly he wasn't. He was standing, pacing, shaking and shouting, and then he screamed. He screamed, allowing himself to let go in a way she had never seen before. He screamed, and it had left her shaken as she sat on the floor and watched him. He screamed, and then he sobbed, and then they talked about it. It took a long while for them to process through what that scream had been like for him, it took a long while for them to process through what it meant for him, for them, that he had scared her, even if just a little. He felt humanly guilt about having done it at all, and he felt demonic pride to have finally managed it. And on top of that, he felt demonic shame about the guilt and humanly shame about the pride. It was confusing for him. He didn't know who he wanted to be. Not entirely. He didn't know who he was allowed to be. They still had so much time. They worked through it. They worked through it together. They trusted each other, after all. They trusted each other, and they liked each other and Aubrey Time was satisfied for the opportunity to show that they could trust each other and like each other, even when he let himself feel all the demonic things he felt, even when he let her see the terrifying edges of his justified rage. Not all of his stories were painful, of course. He had happy stories, too, and talking through them was fun. The first time he came across the name Elijah, he burst out laughing and he couldn't contain his giggles. 
It took a full ten minutes for him to calm down enough to share with her what was so funny. And then they had both ended up laughing together for the rest of the session. There is meaning in our experiences of happiness. There is meaning in the joint appreciation of life's goodness. He undid the book's binding, taking off the leather cover. He tested it in his hands, as if thinking, and he told her he had a plan for it, but he would have to work on it outside of her office. With Aziraphale? she asked. She wanted him involved in the art project in some way, especially once Crowley had assured her that Aziraphale wouldn't take offense to the Bible's desecration. No, he shook his head, still testing how the leather could stretch and fold. I'm going to do this on my own. I'll bring it in when I'm done. That was a little disappointing, but she was curious to see what he would come up with. Her curiosity was sated a few weeks later. He came into the office, reaching into his jacket pocket, and pulled out a small lamp. It looked like an antique, but it wasn't fancy. Oh, come on, she griped in good humor. We both know that couldn't have actually been in your pocket. Why even pretend? He muttered something, then went about setting up the lamp on the table. Then he reached back into his pocket and pulled out a lampshade. She looked at it, and then she realized what it was. The leather binding, stretched and dyed and transformed. Get the lights, will you? He asked, as he got the lampshade situated. She did better than get the lights. She turned them off, and she also closed the blinds on her windows. It was dark until Crowley turned the switch on the lamp. He had poked holes in the leather. Leather working of this sort, she assumed, was not easy. She could only imagine the care and precision it would take to do this. He had poked holes in the leather so that there were small pinpricks of light shining through onto the walls and ceiling. Wow, she said. They stood together in the darkened room, staring up at the ceiling full of shining dots of light. It's cheesy, he sighed. No, she insisted. No, it's not. It took her a long moment to realize what she was looking at. It wasn't just some crude facsimile. She started to spot the details. There was the Little Dipper. There was Orion's belt. There was the Northern Star. That fucker. He recreated the night sky, and the amount of care and precision it would take to manage that literally took her breath away. Explain this to me, she said, still reeling from the awe. I want to understand all of this. He explained. He explained, and it did nothing to lessen the gut-punch sensation of awe. It's beautiful, she said. It's cheesy, he repeated. You know who I bet would love this? She asked, as they were still illuminated just by those small pinpricks of light. She didn't wait for an answer, because they both knew the answer. 
It would make a great anniversary gift, don't you think? He was silent for a moment. Then he said, We don't have an anniversary. Sure you do, she smiled. Or what is it, um, a week anniversary? <laughs> it was the seventh day, right? Or wait, the eighth? An eighth day anniversary? <laughs> he groaned clearly enjoying the true hideousness that was the concept of a weak adversary before giving himself a moment. He thought to revel in the romanticism hidden within the idea of an eighth-day adversary, but then he gave up. He repeated, We don't have an anniversary. She took her time to respond, staring up at the pinpricks of light. So make one she said. She said it, and she could tell that he had heard her. It was luxurious, the direction their work had taken. It was luxurious how slowly it allowed them to go, how freely it allowed Crowley to talk and feel, how impressively clever and thoughtful he could be when he allowed himself to work with his hands. There came a point when he no longer shouted at his creations for being failures. There came a point when he no longer had to repair ripped-up canvases. There came a point when she didn't even bother buying canvas repair kits anymore. Look, he said one day, in a way that got her attention. He sounded little, perhaps hesitant. He was working on a portrait of Bud, who was now in a too large a pot to be brought with him regularly. He was gluing down words that he had dyed a light green, and he wasn't looking at her. I want you to keep this one. He sounded little and hesitant. He sounded like he had pushed the words out before he could be terrified by the vulnerability implied by them. She didn't entirely trust herself with a thorough response. She didn't trust the tears she felt welling up in her eyes, just from that simple offer. Oh, yeah? She managed. Just, you know. He wanted to back away from the intimacy of the offer. She could tell. He wanted to hide away the vulnerability that came from offering something of himself to another. But he was working so very hard, and their therapeutic alliance was so very strong. Don't have to frame it or hang it up or anything. Can keep it locked up in a drawer if you want. Just a gift. She had to wipe a tear from her eye. I'll treasure it. Don't grow soft on me, Herb, he said without looking up. Wouldn't dream of it, she laughed, still wiping at her eyes. But she wouldn't let him distract her. Not from this one. Not for too long. It means a lot to me, Crowley. Thank you. He shrugged like it didn't matter. It did matter. They both knew it mattered. 
Once the picture of Bud was complete, Aubrey Time noticed something unusual about it. She hadn't noticed it at first. She hadn't been paying attention to which words exactly he was using to construct the picture of Bud. But once she noticed, she paid close attention. She counted up the repetitions she saw. She even got a, a magnifying glass to help her make sure she got the count correct. In Bud's leaves, there were 61 instances of the name Mary. In the Bible, there were a total of 61 instances of the name Mary. Each and every one of them had made its way into Bud's leaves. She kept that knowledge to herself. She sat on it, and she molded over. She kept it to herself until it seemed like the time was right. This version of the Bible had some text in red, interspersed throughout the New Testament. For a long time, Crowley did not do anything with any of that red text. He was extremely careful with it, though. He cut out each word that appeared in red as carefully as he could. He took each bit of red text and he stored it in a small box. He stored it and he kept it all safe. And then he turned that red text into a portrait of a man's face. You knew him, she said. Mm-hmm. He glued red words on top of other red words. He knew you by the name Mary, she said. No, he sighed. They just lumped everyone together under the name Mary. So much easier, isn't it? than having to think of women as individuals. It must hurt, she thought, to have your name erased. But you knew him, she pressed. Yes, I knew him. He kept working. He could allow himself to be slow enough to think and feel everything he needed to think and feel, so long as his hands were working. And... I tried to warn him. Then I tried to protect him. He sighed. He sighed and his hands worked. And then I tried to comfort him. I'm so sorry. Like I said, he was trying to sound casual, she thought. But he didn't succeed. You lot all come and go so fast. So many of you. All of you. So many. He trailed off. He was saying something he wasn't saying. She felt they both knew what he wasn't saying. Aubrey Time was going to die someday. Just as the man in the portrait had died. Just as all of those children, all of them, had died just as every mortal would die, just as Crowley and his Aziraphale never, ever would. Aubrey Time would leave him someday. That's how therapy worked. It was always intended to have an end. Their therapeutic work would someday come to an end, and then Aubrey Time herself would come to an end. But 
It was luxurious while it lasted. It was luxurious and it was good and it was meaningful while it lasted. There are a lot of words in the Bible, even when they are stacked on top of each other, crowded up into each other to make lines and arcs, to give structure and shadow to shapes. There are a lot of words in the Bible. She and Crowley, they got a lot of work done with those words, and it took a lot of time. She was growing older as the collection of canvases grew. She was growing older, and he was not. There were two pictures from the start that she had been most interested in. She had been antsy to find out what he would do with the sections at the very beginning of the book and the very end. It surprised her, ultimately, what he did with each. It surprised her, and she needed him to explain both of them to her. It's just because of the angle, he said, pointing to the picture he had made from the majority of Genesis. See, you're looking up a little and the view of him is obscured by feathers. He traced the lines that composed the feathers, and it helped her see it. It was a xerophile, in profile, hidden behind those feathers. I told you, didn't I? He let me stand under his wing when the first rains came. He was shielding me. It was sweet. It was so very sweet. Anthony J. Crowley, she had come to understand, had exactly the sort of sensibilities one would expect from a poet and an artist. The other picture, the one made from Revelations, was much easier to interpret visually. It was much harder to understand, though. She had imagined so many different ways he might depict this section of the Bible, and she was completely at a loss for how he had chosen to do it. It's a symbol, Herb. He said, when she asked about it, sounding like he was annoyed that she didn't just immediately get what it was a symbol for. But then he dropped the tone and he allowed himself to go quiet and intent. It's a symbol of, well, a lot of things. It's a symbol for everything that's ever mattered to me. And it's a symbol of some of the worst things I've ever lived through. It's got all of that all wrapped up in it. It's a symbol for all of the good and all of the bad. The two together, she said. Yes, he said, and there was meaning in it. Yes, together. It was stunning, really. It was stunning and such a potent display of the power of symbols. It was something she could only take as a very human capacity the ability to establish and care about symbols. It was all too human, so gloriously and beautifully human, she thought, to be able to find so much incredible symbolic import in something as simple as a picture of a thermos. We're going to have to talk about the missing piece, she said one day after she had put it off for long enough. What's that? 
he asked, gluing some words down. The finishing touches on a portrait of his car. We've got a whole lot about what happened after the fact. And we've got the lamp for what happened before. She paused here to let the meaning sink in. It was better to let him know what she was saying before she actually said it. We don't have the fall yet. It was quiet. She waited for him as he continued to work on the picture of the car. She trusted him. He hadn't responded yet because he was thinking. You know, he said after about a full minute, turning his head to the side to look at her. He sounded almost surprised, perhaps bemused. It hadn't even occurred to me to include it. She looked at his eyes closely. He wasn't being sarcastic. He was being serious. It made her feel something conflicted deep in her core, a mixture of surprise and happiness, but something else as well. This was the whole point of the third phase, after all, to help him construct a meaningful appreciation of his life as something more than just before the trauma and after the trauma. That was what they had set out to do, and apparently they had done it. You don't have to if you don't want, she said. No, no, he turned back to his work. I think I've got an idea. And I still have the front and back matter from the book to work with, don't I? I think it'll work. He sounded peaceful as he said it. He sounded satisfied. They had done it. They had gotten here. Aubrey Time felt something complicated and sore deep inside. But she felt more, too. She wouldn't let that complicated ache get in the way of her feeling a great, soaring pride. The primary goal for a professional psychotherapist like Aubrey Time is to make herself obsolete. The goal is to help the client gain independence, to heal to the point that he is no longer dependent on a therapist. There was a saying that many of Aubrey Time's peers used to think about their work. The goal is to start terminating with a client from the moment you start. Aubrey Time lived up to her professional responsibilities, or at least she tried to. She interrogated her motivations, and she thought about the luxurious, slow process of her work with Crowley. It was clear neither of them were quick to end things. It was clear she did not want to say goodbye, and she always enjoyed the opportunity to work with him. Aubrey Time interrogated her motivations, and she couldn't deny there was some selfishness underneath the surface, but she also believed that she was justified in the extensive amount of time she dedicated to working with him. She had over 6,000 years to process through, after all, what felt luxuriously slow to her, she reasoned, would seem entirely different from his timeless perspective. She believed it was right, given who he was as a client and the very unusual therapeutic needs he had, that their work was taking so much time. She believed it was right, 
and she made sure to check that he agreed. She let it take time. She let it go slowly, so very slowly. She would go as slowly as Crowley needed. She would ultimately spend such a large portion of her life, her finite, mortal life, content to be his therapist, content to have him as her client. They worked together for such a long time. They worked together and it was luxurious. She got older and he didn't. The fall was the last portrait he finished. It only made sense for it to be the last. It wasn't at all what she had expected. It was good. It was wonderful that it wasn't at all what she expected. It was two hands holding tight to one another, each stretching from an opposite side of the paper. They were stylized, so she couldn't tell whose was whose. Crowley and Aziraphale, she knew, had very different hands, but he had constructed these hands so that it was not clear which hand belonged to which entity. There was no background to indicate which direction was up and which was down. There were no clouds on one side or pits of fire on the other. There were only two hands tumming together, as if from across a great gulf. Is he pulling you up? she asked, or are you pulling him down? Neither, he said, and he smiled at her. We're meeting in the middle. Of course, she said, realizing it could have never been anything else, and she returned his smile. What do you think you're going to do with them all? she asked. They had all the canvases spread out on the floor of her office. There were quite a few different pieces. Some of them looked worse for wear, the earlier ones, when Crowley had still been so consumed by his own self-hatred. Many of them, however, were beautiful. Some of them were downright stunning. The lamp wasn't present, Crowley had explained, Aziraphale wasn't willing to part with it, even for a day. Don't know, Crowley said. What do you think Aziraphale would want to do with them? He grumbled. I don't want the whole cottage littered with these things. Really? She pushed. Would it really be so bad? Hmm. What was that? I, I said no, it wouldn't be. He grumbled some more, though his heart wasn't in the petulance. He smiled in a small, satisfied sort of way. It was luxurious while it lasted. They were sitting across from each other in the two chairs. There wasn't any artwork for him to put together. They were done with that. They were done with all of it. They had finished what they had set out to do. They were sitting across from each other, in the two chairs, just as they had spent so much of their time together. Crowley looked a bit nervous, a bit sad. Aubrey Time assumed that she did as well. She smiled at him. 
It was a sad smile. It was okay for both of them to feel a bit sad. This isn't an end, she said. It's just a change, not an end. His lips quirked upward into something of a smile. It was okay for both of them to feel a bit sad. You're always welcome back, if and when you need it, she said. I know, he said. They had gone over this before. She didn't actually need to say any of it. It just felt reassuring to say. It was okay to feel sad when terminating with a client. Greatest hits, she said, switching focus. What are some of the memories you're going to take from this place? He chuckled as he went about thinking back. He picked up the cloth of his chair's armrest, as if absent-minded. How's your tree doing? He asked, as if that were an answer. Maybe it was. I think it's doing fine, she said. She smiled, and every smile today was going to be a sad one. It took very well to being replanted. I'm worried about the winter coming up, but I'll let you know if I need any advice about that. She had property these days. She had land far out of town. She had bought that land, and she had given her tree a permanent home in that land's soil. She was dedicated to watching that tree thrive. I liked it when you brought that apple, he said. She smiled, nodded, thought back to that. I did too. That was really meaningful for me. Me too, he said, and he didn't try to hide it. Damn it, she thought. We're both going to end up crying. But it was okay. It was okay. Tears are okay when you are open and honest. The circumstances weren't great, she said. But I appreciated getting to see your place. I'm really glad you showed me the M25. <laughs> yeah, he grinned. He sniffed. And I'm glad Aziraphale got to show you the bookshop. Yep, that was nice. His eyes were shiny, but his grin grew even larger now. And I have to say, I had a lot of fun back when you thought I was human. She laughed and she wiped at her eyes. <laughs> you asshole, she said. And she meant all the love she put into the words. Could say whatever I wanted back then, and you didn't have a clue what I was talking about. You have any idea how hard I was working, trying to figure you out? I had a whole theory worked out about how you cared about the story of the apple, you know? Oh yeah? He raised an eyebrow. He looked happy, even with his eyes so glossy. I thought your sigil was a tattoo you got as a rebellious teenager. Ha! <laughs> this was nice. It was good. It was good and there was nothing more for them to do. Keep in touch, she said. I will, he said.
My door's always open, she said. I know, he said. He meant it. He knew it was true. He had worked so very, very hard to be able to know it was true. She wouldn't abandon him. She wouldn't. Not for as long as she could. For as long as she was living, she would be there for him. He had worked so hard for that knowledge. To be able to feel it and live it, he had worked so hard, and he was so proud. I'll see you around, she said. Till next time, he said. And then it was time for him to leave. They would meet again. At least once more, they both knew they would meet again. But they couldn't know more than that. Aubrey Time couldn't know when or where they would meet again, or how many more times they would meet throughout the rest of her life. That was the point of termination, even though it hurt. It was releasing him from the security of the Therapeutic Alliance, trusting that he had the strength and resilience and wisdom and insight to manage on his own, to live his life well, to make the most of the time that was available to him. They would meet again. They would, at least once more. There was no way around it. But that was, at best, bittersweet consolation. She would miss Crowley. She would miss him. It was time for him to go, but she would miss him. It was time for him to go, and she would miss him. Aubrey Time reflected on this, and she pushed her mind to focus on the far sweeter consolation. She would miss him, and she was sad, but she was so very proud of him. She was so very proud of the both of them and all of the work they had done. She could temper her sadness with the feeling of the bone-deep satisfaction that came from having finished a job well done.